Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, it remains forever. So let us give our attention to the reading of it. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, for I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who bear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In the sense of the reading of our God's word, let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears and our doubts. And so we ask that you would flood this darkness with the light of your grace and peace, that you would open our minds to your truth, that you would grant us hope and that you would grant us faith. Increase our understanding. Allow us to receive you through your word. Let your love shine through the pages of your scriptures. May your spirit be with us as we read and hear. May he grant that we might delight in all that we encounter in your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're returning today to our study of Malachi. And then we're going to take another break next week. Uh, Pastor Steve Baugh, Isaac's dad, was going to be bringing God's word to us next week. Um, it's, but Malachi is this wonderful, rich, uh, and yet short book at the end of the Old Testament. And today's passage is about how God is like a refiner's fire that purifies us. And for many of us, that's a familiar passage. But at the same time, it's sort of a shocking image when we think about it, this idea that God allows his people to go into the fire. And it's not unlike that passage that we read a portion of in our call to worship in Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they refused to bow down to uh, the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king ordered that the fiery furnace be cranked up to seven times its normal heat and that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be thrown in for their refusal to bow down and worship his image. And we hear something like that and we're outraged. What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do wrong? Why is it that the good guys are always being punished? 
And why do the wicked sit in the seat of power, uh, destroying lives like it's a sport? Where's the justice? Where's God at a time like that? And that's a lot of how the Israelites were feeling in the days of Malachi. They feel like they're in the proverbial furnace. And they're wondering where God is and where his justice is. And that's what our passage addresses today. But we want to remember the context and the flow of the book of Malachi. This book is about love. And it's about uh, two questions about love. Does God really love Israel? And does Israel really love God? The first question was answered in the opening verses of the book. God says, I have loved you. Israel says, how have you loved us? And he goes on and tells them how. His choice of Israel over the other nations. And how he has time and time again delivered them from their enemies. And how he will continue to act in that way. This is the proof of his love for them. This is a foretaste of what what he will always do for his people. Yes, he loves them. But then he turns to the second question and questions Israel's love for him. And he starts with the priests, the leaders in Israel in in the temple. If they really loved God, they would guard worship in his house. And they would shut the door to those who defile worship. Malachi goes on and says that if they really loved him, if they really loved God, they'd guard their lips from air. They'd not only preach the truth, the cross, but they would embody the cross. They'd serve the people and not themselves. They'd live sacrificially. And then last time we we looked as Malachi turned his attention from the leaders in Israel to the people and talked about marriage. And says, if you really love God, you'll only marry believers. And you'll remain faithful to your marriage vows. And so today we're turning to how the issue of affliction in the Christian life uh, affects us. And how Malachi likens it to a refiner's fire. Uh, The trials in life... Like into a refiner's fire, he's going to tell us, are not proof that God doesn't love us. They're actually proof that he does. And so as we look at this passage, my point this morning will simply be this. Because God loves you, he will allow you to endure the refiner's fire so that when he comes, he will see himself in you. Because God loves you, He will allow you to endure life's hardships, the refiner's fire, so that when he comes, he will see himself in you. That's that's the point that we're going to see from this passage this morning. And to see that, we want to spend some time talking about what our biggest problem is, what we think it is, and what it actually is. And then we will be able to understand what it means that God is a refiner's fire and how that is uh, a great comfort, in fact, our only hope. So that's our, our plan this morning. And as we jump into this passage, it might be good to start by asking, what's the biggest problem the church faces? Um, I think it's a question that Christians are thinking a lot about right now. 
And on the one hand, we have uh, a number of stories in the past few years about corruption, moral failure, and doctrinal failure, uh, and apostasy within the church. And so it would not be surprising that some people might say that the greatest threat the church is facing today is a failure of leadership. Uh, Malachi certainly addresses failure of leadership in his day, um, and so that is certainly one of the problems the church faces. Then there's the adversity Christians are facing in society today. Uh, injustice uh, from government, injustice from society, there's persecution, there's oppression. Uh, there's an antagonistic media. There's a shift in morality today that calls uh, good evil and evil good. And, and if, you, if you don't agree with it, you're vilified. Uh, there's the dangers or the changes in education and what our children are being taught. And any one of these might make it to the top of the list when it comes to great threats the, the church faces. And those are certainly the sorts of questions that the Israelites were asking in the days of Malachi. Look at verse 17. They're, they've been asking, where's God's justice? Uh, they've seen the wicked prospering. And while they're suffering, uh, the only conclusion that they seem to be able to draw is that God must like those who do evil and he must like the evil that they do. They're thinking about the prophets, Habakkuk and uh, Haggai, who talked to them when they were in exile and said, you know, God's going to restore Israel. Things are going to be glorious. We're going to rebuild the temple. And now they're back in the land and the temple's rebuilt and everything is still a mess. And even though they're back, they're still suffering. Those who act wickedly always seem to get special treatment and they're starting to wonder if maybe God is pro-evil. This is the drum they're beating. This is the mantra they're chanting. And God says he's grown tired of it. He's exhausted by their prattle. And that tells you something. Now there are times where uh, people suffer great injustices. And the Bible teaches us to lament and to long for uh, things to be set right. God does not grow tired of our laments. He does not grow tired of our longing for all things to be set right. He tells us to pray for it. He rejoices when we pray for it. And he does not grow tired. No, that's not what's going on here. What have we been seeing? That all is not well in Israel. Their worship is a travesty. They're offering lame and sick animals. They're promising one and bringing another. And they're calling it a sacrifice. They're divorcing their Jewish wives so that they can marry foreigners who don't follow the true God. And now they're accusing God of the one who's doing evil. That, beloved, is not a lament. <laughs> that is an accusation against the holy God. So when Malachi lists out a bunch of sins in chapter 3, verse 5, he's not talking about the sins of the world. He's talking about the sins of Israel. Sorcery, adultery, lies, oppression, failure to care for the poor, the widow, and the orphan, the cheating of people out of their wages, unkindness towards foreigners among them. These are the sins that are taking place in Israel. Among, that God sees among his people. This is inside the church. 
When he, when he says in verse 5 that he's going to come in swift judgment, it's against these sins. He's telling them to be careful what they wish for. They're asking, when's God coming and where is his justice? And he's saying, if I came in justice, I would start with you. When he brought Israel out of Egypt under Moses, in Deuteronomy 4, this is what he said to his people. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and you make carved image of the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Take care, don't forget. And then he says this, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Years later, Isaiah would remind Israel of this when he said, The sinners in Zion, the sinners in Israel are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? You see, as Israel brings these accusations against God and claims that they're the victims of injustice, they are forgetting that their God is holy. And that he cares about holiness. And he cares about his people's holiness. His great concern is not, not for their comfort, but for his glory. And that should be our greatest concern. Our chief end. And so God is like that fiery furnace in the book of Daniel. His wrath is seven times hotter than anything we could ever imagine. It consumes anything unworthy that gets too close. The smallest imperfection, the, the smallest blemish, any sin. And so Malachi asks in verse 2, Who can stand in the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? They're begging for the fiery furnace to come and they don't realize what they're saying. The last thing sinners should be crying out for is for a holy God to draw near in justice. And so what's the biggest problem that the church faces? Injustice, persecution, oppression, an antagonistic media, a shift in morality that calls good evil and evil good. Is, it, is our greatest threat the Department of Education? For that matter, what's the greatest threat in your marriage? What's the greatest threat that parents face? What about our children? What's the biggest danger they face? The greatest problem we face is not the sin out there. It's the sin in our own hearts. Because when all is said and done, the greatest danger we face is not what man can do to us, but what it means to stand before the holy God who is a consuming fire. Because if that danger isn't addressed, then everything else doesn't matter. And that brings us to the refiner and his fire. 
When verse 2 asks who can stand when he appears, it refers to the last day. But it says that before that happens, he's going to send his messenger to prepare the way, and then God himself will come. And in chapter 4, Malachi calls that messenger Elijah. Chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, the Gospels make it clear that this was fulfilled in John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist do? He confronted Israel's sin. He called Israel to repentance. He, he didn't focus on the sins of the surrounding nations. He didn't take aim at the corruption in Roman politics. He addressed Herod's adultery, but that wasn't his focus. He didn't focus on, on, on the injustices against God's people. What would any of that benefit them if their sin was unaddressed? What would profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What would it benefit Israel if they overthrew Rome, if they took the seat of power only to stand in their sins before the God who is a consuming fire? It's not surprising then that, that John the Baptist would pick up the language from Malachi chapter 2 when he came, since it foretold his coming. And he said, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie or carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The one who, coming, who is coming after me, he says, is a consuming fire. Be warned, who can stand when he appears? But God didn't send John to condemn Israel, but to call Israel to repentance. It was an act of mercy. He sent John for Israel's salvation. And that helps us to understand why Malachi refers to the, uh, to the Lord when he comes as a refining fire rather than a consuming fire. And he also refers to him as a fuller soap. I had to look up what a fuller is this week. A fuller is a launderer. Uh, someone who washes laundry and makes it white again. Both these images, the, the launderer and the refiner, have to do with removing impurities. The goal of the launderer is to get the filth out of the clothes, but leave the clothes. You can get rid of the filth with fire, <laughs> but you lose the clothes, so it's about washing. The soap loosens the dirt that it can be rinsed out and only the clothes remain. The refiner's fire is a similar image but more graphic. Perhaps you've heard of how uh, refining precious metals like gold and silver was done. Uh, when they were mined, they would come with all sorts of impurities mixed in. But they're solid. How do you get those out? Well, precious metals can be melted down to a liquid. And, 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 and so there's this somewhat easy way of removing these impurities. You put them over a very, very hot fire. <laughs> and as the, the metal melts into a liquid, it's very heavy. And it sinks, forcing the impurities to the surface. The impurities, called the dross, then just sit right there on the surface. And the refiner 
could scrape or blow those off the surface, but he would do so with great care so as to not waste the precious metal. And so refining is not a destructive per, uh, uh, process, but one of purging what is undesirable from something that is precious. Perhaps you've learned how the refiner could know that all the contaminants were gone. A pure liquid metal acts like a mirror. And so when the refiner could look over and see his own reflection in the metal on the surface, he knew that the contaminants were gone. When he could see himself in the metal, he knew it was pure. So too, when we are purified, Jesus will be able to look at us and see himself in us. See, Malachi is taking us on a journey. He's telling us that our greatest problem is not the sin that's out there. It's the sin in me. He's saying that if, if all God does is come on the last day in justice, not one of us would be able to stand. He says that first God is going to have to send a messenger ahead, John the Baptist, but then, then he says that he will come with that messenger in order to purify us like a refiner purifies silver and gold so that when he finally does come again, we will be ready and not be consumed. So in the time between Jesus' first and second comings, it's a time of purification, it's a time of refining. And the end goal of all this is worship. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says that all of this enables us to bring pleasing offerings to the Lord. Because our chief end is to glorify God. And if that is our chief end, if our, if our greatest threat is our own sin, then our greatest need is to be purified, sanctified, cleansed, washed, renewed, transformed. We think our greatest threat is the world. God says it's us. We think our greatest need is relief. God says it's worship. We want comfort. God wants character. We want changed circumstances. God wants changed hearts. And because that's true, the time that remains until he returns is given over to refining or purifying his church. And the only way to do that is to turn up the heat because that brings the junk to the surface so that it can be removed. Affliction in your life is not proof that God does not love you. But that he does love you, that you are precious to him. And that he is preparing you for the eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison. The worst thing that God could do for us right now is remove all our adversity. Remove all injustice and antagonism and give us ease and comfort and give us the seats of power. That would be like taking the gold out of the fire before it's pure. But there's one more critical aspect to this story. How can we be exposed to the fire and not be consumed? How can what will be judgment for some 
be refinement for us? How can we experience God as a refining fire and not as a consuming fire? For that, we need to go back to where we began with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they suffered affliction at the hand of a corrupt government, when they were thrown into a fiery furnace, how did they survive? How did they come out better than they went in? Why weren't they consumed? Well, do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar saw when he looked in the furnace? He saw a fourth man. One like a son of God. The hope of sinners is the God who goes into the fire with us. The full reality of that was not seen until Jesus, preceded by John the Baptist, came into this world and allowed himself to be consumed by the fiery wrath of God. He suffered all the judgment, all that we deserve so that we would not have to. He suffered the fires of judgment. He allowed them to consume him so that they don't consume us. And through him now, any fiery trials we endure, they don't consume, they don't destroy. They burn off the dross. They make us more pure. They make us more like Jesus so that when he comes back for us, he might see his reflection in us. Those trials prepare us to stand in his presence, washed, cleansed, purified, and refined, and precious in his sight. You see, the very thing Israel was complaining about was the very thing they needed most to prepare them for the coming of their God. They were again questioning God's love for them because they didn't know where to look for it or how to recognize it. God opened this book by telling Israel about his love. His love is seen in, in choosing his people and calling them out of the world. His love is seen in defending them from destruction. His love is seen in the promise that he has, as he has done, he always will continue to do for them. In other words, the greatest comfort that we have as his people, the greatest comfort we could ever have, is the fact that the God who has loved his people in this way doesn't change. And won't wake up one morning and decide to stop loving us, stop purifying us, and abandon us. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord your God, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The reason we are refined and not consumed is because God loves us. Because he came into this world to suffer for us. And because he is faithful and true and because he does not change. And the Lord's Supper this morning drives this home for us in a very profound way. Because something else we learn in the book of Daniel is that when a king has enacted a law, once sealed, he cannot revoke it. He is bound to keep his word. Malachi tells us that Jesus, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, is the messenger of the covenant. Uh, when Jesus came, he instituted a new covenant where he promised to, to give us new hearts and to cleanse us. 
and then he sealed it in his blood. And the Lord's Supper is a continuous seal on his promise that all who come to him in repentance and faith will not be consumed by judgment. And what the Lord has sealed, he cannot change. The Lord's Supper reminds us that the Lord does not change. Therefore, you, O children of God, are not consumed. And so as we come, we're comforted by his love and by his faithfulness. And as we come, we are strengthened to face affliction, knowing that because God loves you, he will allow you to endure the refiner's fire so that when he comes, he will see his face in you. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this precious gift from our God this morning. Oh, holy God, who indeed can stand when you appear. Our only hope is in Jesus who entered the fire in order to save us from it, and who is now refining us, purifying us, making it so that he can see himself in us. Help us desire his holiness above riches, his character above comfort. Teach us to delight in being purified and made ready for the day when we will see your face. Even so we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.